0: Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all here, and well done for getting here. I think I achieved my personal best in getting here this morning, but you're here and I'm here. We're all here. Today we come to the fourth installment in our series of studies in Psalm 23. And the first three verses have presented us with a gentle bucolic scene, it's a picture of green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness. The sheep are at ease, they are comfortable, they are safe. The shepherd has provided them with everything they need. Now in verse 4 there is a noticeable change. There is a change of scene. Now the sheep are on the move, making their way up the mountains to the summer grazing grounds. And the route to those grazing grounds will take them through the valleys. And in verse 4 we find the sheep in one of these valleys. As the authorized version puts it, in the valley of the shadow of death But it seems that here David is using a Hebrew idiom to describe just a place of intense darkness. And so, the meaning need not be restricted to just death alone. We can think of it simply as the darkest valley or the valley of deep gloom. And what is envisaged here is more like a ravine or a gorge cut deep into the rock. This valley is narrow, the walls rise up steeply on either side. Little or no sunlight can penetrate, it's a place of darkness and shadow. But not only is there a change of scene, there is a change of person. In the first three verses, David has used the third person to describe the activities of the shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness. But now in verse 4, And in verse 5, David changes to the second person, from he to you. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. Up until now, David has been talking about the shepherd. Now he is talking To the shepherd. And so he says in verse 4, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The sheep have not been left to fend for themselves in the valley. The shepherd is still with them. That little phrase, you are with me, is the central statement of the psalm, I think I read somewhere that in the original Hebrew there are 26 words preceding this phrase and 26 words succeeding it. So it is literally the centerpiece of the poem. It is central to the life of David because as he uses this metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, He looks back to his own experience of the presence of God. Remember what he said to Saul before going out to confront Goliath. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He knew what it was for the Lord to be with him. But not only is the presence of God a key feature in David's life, it's the central theme of the Bible. The biblical story begins in the book of Genesis, where we have God coexisting with man on earth in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve live in and are entrusted with the care of that garden. It's a place where they experience and enjoy the presence of God. It's a place where God is with them. But as we know from the Genesis account, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They are banished from the presence of God. God is no longer with them because of the disobedience of man, it seems that God's plan to dwell with man on the earth has failed. And the Bible is the epic story of how that God deals with the wreckage of the fall and how that he achieves his ultimate goal of the earth once more becoming a dwelling place which he can share with mankind. This theme of God's presence is encapsulated in that little phrase in verse 4, you are with me. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God with man is particularized in his relationship with a chosen people group, with the children of Israel. As the descendants of Jacob multiplied in Egypt and became a nation, we see the growing identification of God with this emergent people. This identification of God with the Israelites takes on a material dimension when God commissions the construction of a special tent, the design and finish of which is prescribed. In the minutest of detail. That tent was called the Tabernacle. We read God's command in Exodus 25 to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And as the children of Israel made their way through the wilderness, they carried with them this portable sanctuary, this dwelling place of God on earth. They carried it with them as they entered and conquered the land of Canaan. And as Canaan was brought under the control of the Israelites, the tabernacle was set up at Shiloh where it remained for 369 years until the time of Samuel and the priesthood of Eli. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, whose job it was to minister in the tabernacle. Scripture is blunt in its assessment of Hophni and Phinehas. According to 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And further down the same chapter, we read that they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Hophni and Phinehas met their deaths at the hand of Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Worse than that, the Ark of the Covenant, which had rested in the very center of the tabernacle, was captured. And when the news of the death of his sons and the capture of the Ark, and particularly the capture of the Ark, reached the ears of Eli the priest the old man fell backwards off his chair and died from a broken neck. And as a footnote, when the wife of Phinehas gave birth to a son, before she died, she named the child Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And so here we have it again. An attempt by God to dwell with His people, just as in the Garden of Eden, ending in failure and tragedy. In due course, the ark is recaptured from the Philistines and eventually taken to David's new capital city, Jerusalem. It falls to David's son and successor Solomon to build a temple to the Lord Jerusalem. It takes seven years for the building to be completed. And 1 Kings chapter 6 sets out in meticulous detail the materials which were used in its construction. That has a resonance with the detail pattern demanded by God in the construction of the tabernacle. And this link with the tabernacle is maintained when the Ark of the Covenant, which was located right in the middle of the tabernacle, is brought into the temple and placed in the inner sanctuary. Now there is a growing perception of Jerusalem as a temple city, as the city of God pilgrimages to Jerusalem became a source of delight for the Israelites. When you read Psalms 120 to 134, you are reading some of the songs sung by the pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. We sometimes refer to those psalms as the songs of ascent. And then, in 586 BC, disaster strikes again, and the magnificent temple of Solomon is destroyed by the Babylonians. In Psalm 137, we hear the lament of the exiles. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Once again, God's plan seemed to be in ruins, literally. In due course, the temple is rebuilt, albeit on a smaller scale. Later, it was massively extended by Herod the Great. And it is this building, the second temple, which dominated Jerusalem during the life of Jesus And it is with the birth of Jesus that we have the most dramatic development of all in this epic story. With the incarnation, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we have the actual bodily presence of God on earth. In the words of Charles Wesley's famous hymn, Veiled in Flesh. The Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And John recorded in the first chapter of his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase can also be translated and tabernacled among us. And so Christ is identified with the tabernacle. So he identified with the temple. We see this in John chapter 2 when he cleanses the temple and clears the temple of the traders and moneylenders. He is asked by the Jews what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And his answer was, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. And John comments, but the temple he had spoken of, was his body, but then in a short time that body was brutalized and nailed to a cross. That lifeless body was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb and it looks as if again the divine initiative has ended in the most humiliating of failures. But Jesus was raised on the third day and subsequently ascended into heaven. That raises the question, what now of the presence of God on the earth? And again, it is John who provides the answer, recording the words of the Lord Jesus in chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor Or comforter to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. This promise is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 where Luke records the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Here again is God's presence on the earth. And if you go back to Exodus 40 When the construction of the tabernacle was completed, we read, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now in Acts chapter 2, all of them, that is the disciples, were filled with the Holy Spirit. So we have these links with the tabernacle and the temple. Each in turn was the dwelling place of God. But now there is a development. We are leaving behind a localized view of God seen in the tabernacle and the temple. We're moving to a more universal view of God we are moving from the idea of God living among His people and moving to the idea of God living within His people. This point is underscored by the fact that less than 40 years after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And now the dwelling place of God on earth is not a building, it's the church. By which I mean that great collection of believers all over the world who together make up the body of Christ. You see this in Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's Spirit lives in you, and to the Ephesians, and in Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Then there is one final installment in this epic story. When you turn to Revelation 21, there you have John's remarkable vision of a new heaven and a new earth and he writes these words I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God And so at last God's plan which began in the Garden of Eden will one day be finally and gloriously accomplished. But that is in the future. And for the present, the dwelling place of God is in the heart of every believer in Christ. And it is the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit which convinces us as believers of the love of God and the presence of God in our lives. That's why in Romans 5, Paul can declare, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Again to the Corinthians, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. that is why every Christian can identify with David's statement, you are with me. And insofar as this Psalm is a picture of the life of a believer, then it is absolutely accurate. Sometimes life is good good health, no financial worries, our relationships are harmonious, business doing well, success in examinations. It's a period of green pastures and still waters. And then, sometimes without warning, it all goes wrong, accident illness, bereavement, disappointment, some kind of moral lapse. On the other hand it may be a gradual process, a creeping onset of old age with all its problems and difficulties. And yes, the inevitable approach of death. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the reasons, you may find yourself in the darkest valley or even the valley of the shadow of death. And in the darkest valley, we are promised the presence of the shepherd. We are also promised the comfort of the shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was most likely a sturdy wooden stick or club used to protect against predators. The staff on the other hand was a long slender stick used to guide and rescue. We don't have time to consider this in any detail, but we have the twin ideas of guarding and guiding. But it is in the darkest valley that this statement, you are with me, is put to the test. And sometimes in that darkest valley, let's be honest, it doesn't seem that God is with us. We struggle to feel His presence. We can't really say with conviction You are with me. In fact, the language of the previous psalm, Psalm 22, might seem more appropriate. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Well, if you feel like that, one response to this is through the reading of Scripture to deepen our understanding and our appreciation of what God has done in the past and what He will do in the future and see the unfolding of His plan. That is why we've spent quite a little bit of time reviewing the progress and implementation of that plan. Lay hold of the truth that this God who has acted in history and who has intervened in this world in the person of Jesus Christ is the same God who was with David. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with you. Another response is like David, to remember our experience of God in the past to remember the lessons learned in the green pastures and by the still waters. Those past experiences, those lessons learned are not invalidated by the present fears of the darkest valley. Understand that our status before God and our spiritual condition do not fundamentally depend on how we feel. They depend on what the God of the Bible has done for us in Christ. They depend on the God of the Bible remaining true to his word. And so we need to hold on to the promises of God in Scripture. In the New Testament, the writer to the Hebrews quoted and used the Old Testament promise of Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Corrie Ten Boom survived the horror of the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbruck. She wrote, I have experienced his presence in the deepest hell that man can create. I have really tested the promises of the Bible. And believe me, you can count on them. So, if you are in the darkest valley, adopt David's statement. Make it the centerpiece of your thinking. Embrace it. Embed it in your mind. You are with me. In conclusion, some of you will remember the name David Watson. He was an Anglican minister who presided over the transformation of two failing churches in York between 1965 and 1982. In January 1983, David Watson was diagnosed with cancer. He wrote a little book about his experience and the title he chose for that book was Fear No Evil. As he came to the end of the book, he wrote these words and they act as a summary of what we have been trying to say this morning. When I die, it is my firm conviction that I will be more alive than ever, experiencing the full reality of all that God has prepared for us in Christ. Sometimes I have foretastes of that reality when the sense of God's presence is especially vivid. Although such moments are comparatively rare, they whet my appetite much more. The actual moment of dying is still shrouded in mystery, but as I keep my eyes on Jesus, I am not afraid. Jesus has already been through death for us and will be with us when we walk through it ourselves. In those great words of the 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. A few weeks later, a year and a month after that initial diagnosis, David Watson passed into the presence of the shepherd. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time spent looking at your word and and in particular this wonderful psalm. We thank you for the truth that your love is unfeeling and steadfast each of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ can claim the promise you are with me and so we ask for your blessing as we separate now be with us the rest of this day and in the week to come in Jesus name Amen Our service is over thank you for coming